You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In celebration of Black History Month, Hyundai is proud to support the OWN Network. Have you ever thought about your car personality? What's your vibe? Do you like the classic fully gas-powered engine? Are you a best-of-both-worlds type? Driving on battery power while keeping gas on reserve? Or are you more inclined to choose a convenient hybrid ride? Whichever your vibe, there's a Hyundai Tucson to match and a powertrain to get you there. Okay, Hyundai! Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the 2023 Hyundai Tucson. The 2023 Tucson Plug-in Hybrid is only sold in California, Colorado, Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Through 25 seasons, 4,561 episodes. I believe the Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. Paradise by Toni Morrison. You had seven weeks to read it, but if there ever was a book that required more time, it was this one. I uh, have read it twice, almost three times. I heard from many people this month. Some admitted that they could not make it to paradise, that they just couldn't make it to paradise. And even readers who did finish still felt a little confused. So the first time our book club became a class, we needed help. Before we get into it, though, let's take a look at a few things we learned right off the bat. Take a look. The book is called Paradise. Repeat after me. Paradise. Paradise. Our 13th book brought us to prestigious Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey, where 20 viewers and I became paradise pupils for a day. It's a natural setting, not only because it's a place of higher learning, woo girl, do we need that, but it's also where author Toni Morrison teaches. Could we find paradise inside Princeton? This is uh, delightful. I would like to begin just by asking you to do a couple of things. 
One of the first lessons we learned is that 22 people are a lot of voices to have mic'd in one room. Nobody heard any of that. Okay, one person answered the question. Or they're in another world. One at a time, one at a time. The question. We all tried to come prepared, but who could compete with these scholars? We go along in a contemporary religion that's dogmatic. But aren't you the one who went back to the Latin dictionary in Genesis oh, to figure this out? Well, I mean, yes. <laughs> there were times I had to call a timeout. That it's Mary and Jesus and Connie, the goddess. What did you just say? United the goddess. our heads. <laughs> My best friend Gail crashed our course and leave it to her to bring us down to earth. Ms. Morrison, are we supposed to get it on the first read? Because I've read it. I'm not even trying to be funny, because I've read it once. And I called her over and I said, please, explain it to me. And you'll see, Toni Morrison was coy about giving up any secrets of paradise. Is Anna's version correct? Is Billy Delia's version correct? Version mm. of? Please, just give us that. Wise author that she is, she knows the rewards are twice as great when we readers get to unlock the secrets on our own. And that is paradise. That is paradise. And that is paradise. Whew. Now I can't wait to read it again. I thought I knew something. Even if you haven't read the book, uh, our session with Toni Morrison is going to give you a lot to think about. You have read the book, right? Have all of you read it? Yeah. Were you lost or found? Lost? Lost. Lost, lost. yes. Mm -hmm. I was lost because we'd start the book at one time and then you end at another time. You know, 1918, 20 here and 1970 here, you go back and forth. Okay, that's why you were lost. What, you were lost too? I was lost because I came into it. I really wanted to read the book and love it and learn some life lessons. And when I got into it, it was so confusing. I questioned the value of a book that is that hard to understand and mm -hmm. I just quit reading it. You quit? Yes. Where did you quit? Uh, I think it's Seneca. Oh, you quit at Seneca? Well, no, I think I read Seneca and then, you know, because I, I did it right at the beginning because I wanted to go to Princeton. And so it's been a while and then, you know. You were doing it just to get the free no, trip. No, no, because I really thought I was going to get something really big Okay, out okay, of this book. okay, okay. I, I promise you that when you, if you listen to this whole show today, you will go back in and it will be so much more gratifying to you because it, it will just, because there, uh, I have an interview coming up right now with Toni Morrison. There are two key things that she says. First of all, you have to open yourself up. You don't read this book just with your head. You have to open your whole self up. It's a whole new way of experiencing reading and life. Second of all, what you say, she makes this point very clearly, so when you hear it, I'm just you know, reemphasizing what she's mm -hmm. going to say, is that when you go into a town and you are a new person in town and you're getting to know the people in the town, do you know everything all no, at once? No. When you're standing in front of the mirror in the morning and you're brushing your teeth, are you just thinking about brushing your teeth? Or are you thinking about what's going to happen later that day? Or what happened six weeks ago? Or what happened five years ago? The book is written the way life happens. You don't learn everything in a linear fashion. So when you open yourself up to know that, then you experience the reading a lot differently than you do other reading material. Because it's about Sh life. Should have told us that. <laughs> 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 it would have been easier for me. But I'm telling you now. Okay, I'm telling you now that it, you have to yeah. open yourself. It's like a life experience. It's getting to know people. 
getting to know people in a town. It's not everything laid out. No, that makes sense. Does that make oh, sense? Perfectly, Okay, yeah. she says the yeah. same thing. Now, before we started our class at Princeton, Toni Morrison told us what first sparked this idea. Paradise. How did it begin? Where did it start in your mind? I got interested in, I think, a very little-known, poorly understood period in uh, African-American life and history. And that was the creation of all of those all-black towns in the West. And then I began to read about how they got started soliciting people to come. And I got taken with that uh, newspaper column, Come Prepared or Not at All. And it seemed so reasonable, a request, that people not come out there unprepared, with no food, no money, into virgin territory. But then I read that some ex-slaves, about 200 of them, had indeed come there, and they didn't have a thing, and they were turned away. That made me think, what happened to those people who were turned away? Where did they go? Because that was an extraordinary situation of ex-slaves being turned away by ex-slaves. So that was a double kind of rejection that they must have felt. So paradise started as a result of where are they now? What where happened to those now? people? Where are they now? And if they ever got to build an all-black town, which would have been paradise for them. It would have been perfect. That's what they all hoped for. One place where they were not harassed, where they were not threatened, where they could be as fine as they could be. That's what they wanted, that paradise. Did some research on how some of these all-black towns got settled in parts of the West, particularly Oklahoma, where the book Paradise is set. There were 28 in all, 12 of them remain today. Take a look at the real-life history behind the ruby that you read about or will read about in Paradise. Now, this is the place that time went by. We took nothing and made something. I live in Bowling. Is there any place else to live? Black people knew in order to get out of some of the nightmare, some of the poison of racism that had been spread throughout this country at that time for 150 years, they knew if they could come to a Lima, Oklahoma, Rentiesville, Oklahoma, a Booker T, Washington, Oklahoma, and eventually owned property, they knew that was a better day. Uh, we'd wake up in the morning, the university wouldn't have water, the city wouldn't have water. So I told the governor, I said, I am Without water, I haven't been able to take a bath. And uh, I know you have a beautiful mansion there. I said, but I think I'm going to come right down with my house school, and, and uh, I'm asking you, could I use your bathroom? And he said, he laughed and told him when we, when we submitted our proposal, he said, whatever that mayor and Langston, Oklahoma, won't give it to us. <laughs>
Oklahoma is so unique that no place else in the continental United States had 28 all-black towns and cities but Oklahoma. That phenomenon happened nowhere else in the nation. Booker T. Washington came to Boley, Oklahoma twice, and he deemed it the finest black town in the world. So the dream, go west young man, transcended race. And African Americans took advantage of that. It's always nice to be in the majority, you know what I mean? And that's what a black town gave me, being in the majority. Now, to start listening to disadvantages, you get secondhand books, and you go to school, get your books, somebody else's name in them. Former slaves wanted more than freedom for themselves and their family. They wanted their children to obtain, eventually, a college education. They wanted their children to be able to become entrepreneurs and run businesses and commerce. They wanted their children to be good citizens. The concept of an all-black town when it equates to pride and self-worth is something that no one, no one could ever take away from you. If, if you're gonna give me anything at all, give me Langston. Langston is the most wonderful place I've ever lived, ever, ever dreamed of living. It's a beautiful place because people are beautiful. Not in, not in color, what they look like, but just, just the atmosphere of people makes life worth living. There were 22 of us who attended the Princeton class with Toni Morrison. 20 of you wrote in. My neighbor, Trudy Schwartz, did not write, but she's my neighbor and she loves Toni Morrison. And so I said, Trudy, you can come. My best friend, Gail, uh, she just crashed it, period. <laughs> so there was Trudy and Gail. They were the other two who did not write the letters. Everybody else did. I know there was no chance I could get all my questions in with that eager group of readers. So I got one-on-one -on -one time with a Nobel Prize winning author before our class began. What is this book about to you? Because, you know, I was, I was saying, I was in a car, four women who've all read the book and are all b become defensive about their ability to read and their intelligence level. <laughs> We're all saying, but you know, I've read many books and I went to this college and that's when I know everybody's being defensive because people, this is a very challenging book. And uh, someone said, had said that it's challenging, it's like taking a trip, but you better have your bags packed. You better not have your bags empty. So what is it about to you? It's an interrogation. It's a questioning on my part, which is still going on, of the nature of paradise, paradises, whether they're earthly or posthumous, gated cities, perfect towns, chosen people, all of this that human beings strive for to finally reach that place. And why doesn't it last? And why is our imagination so weak when it comes to establishing it? Why is all the literature about very elaborate real estate with paved roads, a lot of m precious metal and precious jewelry and some natural food you can pick off the tree? I mean, you can get that in any theme park now. Right, right. So that our whole notion of paradise is bankrupt. When did the sentence come, the first sentence, they shoot the white girl first? I wanted the book to begin with the assault, when somebody puts their finger on a trigger, and that space of time, that eternity, between touching the trigger 
and pulling it. And the whole world exists between those two gestures. So the book should start out with a trigger, and the rest of the book would take place so we could figure out why they were doing that anyway, just that eternity in between. Well, the, the best sentence in the world, I think, on page 18, bodacious black eaves unredeemed by Mary, and that chapter ends with the men take aim for Ruby. You didn't know then that they were going to die? You did not know. Amazing. But I finally realized, something I should have realized from the beginning because I always knew the epigram, mm -hmm. which had that last sentence, and they will not die, and you will not die again. So now I'm in the whole vocabulary of Christianity, which is about redemption, resurrection. Was there any particular voice that spoke to you more clearly than others? There was no one. There was no one. There was no leading character, because I wanted to force the reader to become acquainted with the communities. I wanted you have to look at each one of these people and figure out who each one was, and then see their relationship to each other and how that changed in each of these paradises. And I wanted the weight of interpretation to be on the reader, the way you do when you walk into a town. When you walk into a neighborhood, you don't know anybody. Do you really just want to know the one person who seems to know everything about the neighborhood? I know. That is exactly what is so fascinating about this book, that it's about life. It's the same way you approach life. Yeah. You don't know everything all at once. Right. Exactly right. I, I find that so fascinating, because I've run into a lot of people who think, does she know that that's what's happening <laughs> with people? You intended that to happen. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I intended people to know and remember that no matter what you're doing, you get up in the morning, you do this, and then you do something else. And that's linear chronological time. But we don't really live that way. We're standing at the sink, doing the dishes, or brushing our teeth. But we're thinking about something that happened a week ago, mm -hmm. something that might happen tomorrow or next year, something that happened 50 years ago. Because even though we're standing in contemporary time, our minds are not. We're layered in time. Layered. So that the book is layered that way. So that people are going forward and they're thinking about something that took place a long time ago. Is there anything you want people to come away from it? I, what I sense is everybody comes away with something different. I feel that that's the way it should be, that there isn't one interpretation. I wouldn't want to end up having written a book in which it was a formula and a perfect conclusion and that was the meaning and the only meaning. Mm. There should be several. If it's worth writing, it's worth going back to later. It'll be different, even for you, Oprah, 15 years from now. Oh, it'll be different for me tomorrow, <laughs> after this study group. <laughs> now, we're going to, does it surprise you that we need a study group? And as I was reading it, I thought, what we need is a study group. We need a study group. Sure. Novels are for talking about, and quarreling about, and engaging in some powerful way. However that happens in a reading group, a study group, a classroom, or just some friends getting together, it's a delightful, desirable thing to do. And I think it helps. Uh, reading is solitary, but that's not its only life. It should have a talking life, a discourse that follows it. Well, this is a rare opportunity. I have upon occasion been asked to teach my own work and have refused for any number of reasons, one of which is I know too much about it, and at the same time, not enough. And also, I didn't want to impose on 
students who had asked me these questions about the fundamental and final reading, as though I had it. But this is delightful. I would like to begin just by asking you to do a couple of things and putting to you one or two questions. And then I hope that will clarify some things so that the rest of the questions will be uh, in the context of what the novel is about. I want somebody to volunteer to read the epigram for me. For many are the pleasant forms which exist in numerous sins and incontinencies and disgraceful passions and fleeting pleasures which men embrace until they become sober and go up to their resting place. And they will find me there and they will live and they will not die again. Now what does that last line mean to you? And they will not die again. Mm. Anyone? To me it's transcendence or transformation from a from, from one place to another, one state one of being, one state of being to another, a healing that takes place. Okay. Any other observations on what that last line, and they will not die again, means or might mean? I thought that each sin was like a little death, mm. and once they got to this place, they would sin no more, mm -hmm. so they wouldn't die again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they will die. They will but die. you're suggesting that those little sins are the small deaths. Little deaths. And then you can arrive at a place where there, it's sinlessness yes. and so that you don't have to die again. Exactly. That's good. Interesting. Ms. Morris, Morrison, are we supposed to get it on the first read? Because I've read it. I'm not even trying to be funny, because I've read it once. And I called over and I said, please, explain it to me. So I'm thinking, so I'm now on my second read. I'm hoping I'll get it on the second mm -hmm. read. Is that doable? <laughs> We all Am I the only one who no. got that one? What is it? If you had read it, if you had read it initially, as a friend of mine calls it, read it to the bone, mm -hmm. the first time, it would have been possible to sort of, quote, get everything. But that's not really what I anticipate. I would like for you to have an intellectual response to the issues being debated here, the kinds of things. And that may be easier than you think. I think what may have blocked you and maybe some others from understanding it fully the first time is because it does have that vocabulary. It does require an opening up. I went to college. <laughs> I'm really kind of smart. <laughs> but there were a couple of times I'd read a page three or four times. Okay, let's talk about the opening up. What do you mean by opening up? I mean that you enter the landscape of a novel. You enter it fully. You suspend disbelief. And you walk in there like an innocent, but who trusts. And you trust the narrator. You trust the book. It's risky. It might disappoint you, but that's the way you go in it. And things that you cannot sort of fathom become instantly recognizable and knowable under those circumstances. You walk in, does this, is this really technically possible for? That's hardly the point. You suspend disbelief of everything that might not be possible in the material world. But I, I think one of the things you said, you, you give us ambiguities. In, pieces that we have to put together. Well, then in each reading, you develop more, and you see something you didn't see the last time. And so I don't think it's 
That's because I wanted to be a pleasant experience. <laughs> I didn't want to write an essay. I wanted you to participate in the journey. But back to Gail's question, when you first read that, okay, that's the first thing you read. We're not supposed to know that when we read it, are we? Which means first no, thing you read, the epigram? You the mean? epigram. Yeah. Well, because I, of course, I started with the epigram. I read it about three or four times. I went, oh, I don't get it. Let me move on. Yeah. I'm going to move on. And then maybe it will come to, come to me later what this really means. Yeah. I don't believe you, Ropa. <laughs> no, I don't believe that you, that that happened to you. I think you think it didn't mean anything to you. I think you read it with some heightened expectation that it was in German and you didn't speak German. But what I'm saying is that if I read it to you very slowly, one word at a time, you would know instantly what that meant. Oh, I knew that it meant we were in for a major journey here. I knew that. Well, what's left to understand? There is nothing left to understand. That, you got it, is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay. You got it, and you didn't believe you got it. Okay. And then I was ready for Ruby. That's right. I want to throw out something that relates to the other characters. One of the things that, that fascinates me about this book is that there really aren't any villains. Uh, some of you probably aren't going to agree with that. They're, they're all victims. Everybody's a they're victim. They're all human. They're all yeah. human. And they're like well, human beings. Some of them have more things that are right with and them these victims than wrong. Get other victims. I don't believe in victims. Yeah. Yeah. It's the way we are in the world. <laughs> we all think. Yes, what? What? One yeah. Question? One more we question. Have... When we got to go character by character. Go ahead. Miss Morrison, when you sit down to write a book like this, do you think of these connective thoughts ahead of time, or does this develop as the characters go on? and then you connect these special places? Well, most of them, I think, in advance. But there are other things that you can't know until you get in the writing and you say, ah, the connection is already there, even though I didn't anticipate it. I can see it now. Yeah. Sometimes you don't even know why a character is even in there. Right. What are they doing? So when you go to write, you have to be opened up also. You are already open. Are you just always walking around open? No, I don't stop. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> I begin to write the words after I have gone through this concave, open for anything, even if it sounds daft, encounter. I mean, I don't know what I look like when I'm thinking these things up. Or other writers, you know, you might be staring out the window you might be driving along in a car or however, once you figure out where your best place is, where you are when you think. Somebody was asking me um, about this terrible child that Mavis had, her daughter who pinches her And I kept saying, why do you call her terrible? I said, think what it must feel like for an 11-year-old girl to have a mother who permits her as a doormat and you watch this woman get knocked around by the father. She seems totally incompetent. You're terrified as a kid that that might be you. So you hate her for bringing out all these weaknesses. And I was going on to describe that this was not the bad seed. This was what particularly the girl would feel like if her mother is permitting herself, for whatever reasons, to be knocked around like that. And to be that disorganized, that incompetent, and then to be so incompetent 
the kids die. Yeah. I mean, but did she really didn't mean to kill the kids. I don't think that she no, really she didn't. didn't mean but to that kill daughter's them. not gonna. The daughter doesn't say, "Oh well." I mean, she's a child. Her mother could end up killing her by mistake. So she's I mean, very afraid, isn't she? The little eleven-year-old. Yeah. And very later, afraid. yeah, she's frightened. Yeah. But she's the power is over there with the father, right? right. So she's when she's being hateful to her mother, it's out of a desperate need to know what are the boundaries. When you, when you were talking about Mavis and, and you said that she was incompetent, and I didn't necessarily see Mavis that way. I saw Mavis, you know, a woman coming from domestic violence, and, then, and when she ran away, it's that one line in the book that I remembered. She looks back at the hospital and she says, I was there 15 times, four times for childbirth. In today's society, we'd call her a battered woman. We wouldn't consider her incompetent. That's so a I scary don't... thing when you have a grown parent who cannot defend herself. How can they defend you? She can't even feed them properly. She's thinking, oh, what, spam, wieners? Yeah. Yeah. Was it a store, <laughs> sunglasses? I mean, she is totally demoralized. Yeah. And so Which is the thing I think battered women need to know about themselves through the eyes of their children. Because that's a right. lot of people say they that's stay right. because of the children. He well, beats not, me, but he's good to the children. It's, I think in many cases, if not most, the damage, the psychological damage by watching that abuse is, is worse than even taking it. They can't defend you. The children can't defend you. And you're not defending yourself. And they are in danger because, A, maybe I will grow up to be like that, uh, which is nothing. It's kind of renegotiate, rethinking that whole idea of all paradises in literature and history and so on, and in our minds and in all of the holy books, are special places that are fruitful, bountiful, safe, gorgeous, and defined by those who can't get in. Yes, yes. Exactly. And you have to exclude and feel the status of being elect. Oh, got it. <laughs> key. key, that's key. <laughs> key. Light bulb there. Yeah. <laughs> bing, 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 bing. <laughs> One of the things that confounded many Paradise readers was whether the women in the convent were black or white or Hispanic or mixed or what were they? Toni Morrison withheld race information intentionally so readers would know her characters. I will tell you, the first time I read it, I thought I was fortunate enough to be one of the first people to read the original manuscript. So one of my notes on the side was, Tony needs to clarify who these racist women are. <laughs> oh my goodness, so glad I didn't bring that up. Uh, uh, that's only one of the bold secrets that she uh, plans to keep. Uh, and I, I go back and forth as to who I believe was the white girl who got shot first, but we did make a little headway unlocking some of the other secrets. The first sentence of the book is an important sentence because, A, it launches the story, and that's its job, is to pull the reader in, seduce you immediately into the narrative, uh, and tell you a little bit about what's going on. There's a lot one doesn't know when you read that first sentence. There's an awful lot you do know. I didn't write, they shoot the tall girl first, or they shoot the fat girl, or the thin girl. I mean, I said white, which means that race is going to play a part in the narrative. It may not play the part we are used to race playing, 
and identifying who is black and who is white and what does all that mean, it played another kind of role, which was to signal race instantly and to reduce it to nothing. But at the same time, it is very hard to write race and to unwrite it at the same time. So you have to withhold information. And that means that some readers were deeply preoccupied with finding out which was the single one, who was white. That means you have to decide who the three are black. Others less engaged, and maybe some not at all. But I obviously wanted some strong response. Otherwise, card. I wouldn't have signaled it so overwhelmingly. You did play the race card. <laughs> <laughs> That's from that moment on, I was trying to figure you out. You were trying to figure Teresa out. Doesn't, Teresa card. doesn't think that at all. Teresa, what do you want to say? I didn't, didn't think you played the race card, no. The beauty of that book for me was not knowing their race. But it must scare us, too, because we're busy guessing who was black, who was white. Because and, when, and then, and then, because it motivated but the, the men to is, go out there. That's exactly when you, what scared you know, them. You're right, but the point is, you do have to know them as individuals. Yeah. That was why the racial information was withheld. Because when you know their race, what do you know? You don't know anything. One at a time, one at a time. The question is, are they dead or alive? OK, what is it? They're both. They're neither dead nor alive, and they're dead and alive. They're somewhere in between. Not purgatory, but yes, I think they're they're spirits. They're like spirits. All right, we just we got to get the answer to this question. <laughs> what is it? What question? Are they dead or alive? There's a mentioning in the book twice of a, a chapter in Corinthians, and there's a, a reference in Corinthians that Paul makes about going to a third heaven, and he calls it uh, a paradise. And he says, whether uh, it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Yeah. And that's what I think this is. He was, you don't know whether they're that's in the, the body yeah. or yeah. out of the body, yeah. but it's a biblical yeah. illusion. That's good. You open yourself up. Is there, okay, okay, okay. To ask the question, are they living or are they dead? is to avoid the real question, right. which is this other place. Which is the other place. Yeah. Okay. You have to be open to this. Yeah, it's not just black or white, living, dead, up, down, in, out. It's being open to all these paths and connections and interstices between. And that is paradise. That is paradise. And that is paradise. <laughs> Paradise is being open to all the places in between. Thank you, Toni Morrison, and thank you, Princeton University. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, the podcast. And I thank you for listening.